everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Articulating Insight Podcast. The second one, in fact, and the first one I have with a guest. And a very cool guest I have indeed. It is Josh, also known as the Prankster, and he's also called himself Hollis Frampton, or Frampton Hollis. No, not actually the experimental filmmaker, he just, like, you know, it's a tribute. He made a little tribute. And, um, yeah, that was my guess. So just uh, some guy I found uh, through a friend who found his YouTube channel and thought his videos were crazy, and they are. Check out the prankster. He's got crazy cool montages and just whacked out stuff on there. It's awesome. It's really cool. I highly recommend checking it out. And I thought, like, I, I just added him on Discord a while ago and never really got a chance to talk to him. It just didn't come up after I had first added him. Um... And I just thought this would be a great opportunity for someone I thought about who would probably have a really unique perspective. And he did, absolutely. And another thing that was quite serendipitous was he likes to talk, absolutely. And I don't think you'd take that as an insult. He um, admits it himself in the episode. He just goes off. Like, I, I was kind of nervous because this is like my first episode of having a guest on the podcast. And I was just, I got in the call with him, and then I was just like, hey, man, how's it going? It's going good. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do this podcast thing. And then, boom, like, we basically got right into where the podcast starts, just right off the bat. And uh, he didn't get any prompting or anything. It was just off, and it was great. Unfortunately, um, in some ways, we ended up with a lot of footage. Uh, I think we recorded about two hours for the original podcast, and as you can see from the length of this, uh, it's cut down a fair bit. Um... And including this intro, you know, etc. So, I cut it down a bit, and um, most of what I cut was this really great, but really long and specific, um, specifically Strozek, the Werner Herzog film, and um, about, like, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks, The Return of Mulholland Drive, just this really in-depth analysis of them that is great. Um, and if you ever, if you want that footage, if you're interested in this episode or whatever, um, comment it, feel free to hit me up or anything, um, and I, I'd be willing to post it, but just with what I wanted to accomplish with this episode, I wanted to keep, it just, and just in general with this podcast, I want to keep it general, like I want to keep it, for the most part, because as, that's the kind of thing about this episode that I feel like I should warn about, is that we do get really specific about a lot of films, but... Uh, overall, I want to focus on insights that anyone can kind of internalize and think about logically with regards to art. But yeah, so like I was saying, with this episode, we do specifically... Here, here's, I'll give a list of films we kind of get deeper into. So we talk about um, Cheyenne Sonos, Cheyenne Sonos uh, Love Exposure, John Cassavetti's Woman Under the Influence, um, Seven Samurai, I mean, you, know, you know who it's by, uh, films of Robert Altman, like uh, mainly Nashville and Three Women, uh, we get into a big 2001 conversation, uh, Buffalo 66, and Blue Velvet. So if you haven't, if you're unfamiliar with all those films, I have a feeling this episode could be a little difficult for you. Um, and not like not trying to be like, oh, you might not be smart enough. No, it's more like we we get into specifics about these films in a way that can be kind of hard to engage with if you if you aren't familiar with them. So um, I hope you don't turn off the podcast because. I do want to talk about general terms, and we do get there. We absolutely get there, and I think there are insights to be taken from each of our conversations. Um, but mainly, um, I just want to focus on the fact that this was a bit of um, an episode where I had to adapt to a different kind of style than I, I necessarily wanted to take the podcast in, but I was glad for it, because like, absolutely, like I invited uh, Josh here as a guest, 
and I'm totally willing to talk about whatever he wants to talk about because I'm, I'm open to those sort of things. And I think it turned out great. I think we got a, re- a really cool episode here. And, um, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give a little, um, like, hindsight on after editing the podcast, which I've already done at this point, um, about the 2001 conversation we have because we do go really deep on it. And it's hard to have, like, a conversation where two people are coming from differing perspectives and trying to have, like, an articulate back and forth about it. Um, so... Josh does use this kind of really flowery, grandiose language when talking about it, which is like I'm sure is absolutely how he feels about it. But it, it is it's kind it's tough for me to kind of parse a bit. Um, so I feel like th- that was just kind of a struggle to kind of get to kind of um, find a way of conversing where we could kind of compromise there. Um, but I'm glad he was so enthusiastic about it and so willing to just hash it all out because that's really my main point with the 2001 thing is that um, I've had an experience in the past where I try to talk about it with people and they just kind of shut down and treat it like this holy object that can't be critiqued and isn't allowed to be questioned, which, I mean, obviously shouldn't be, like, you shouldn't act like that about anything. You should be willing to talk about anything. Um, a, a point I'd like to elaborate on that I make is I make this connection between 2001 and Uncut Gems that, like, in the moment, I was like, I got it. I, got, I found the, the, the key. I, it's all laid out in front of me. I got the fucking, the fucking code here. Uh, in hindsight, when I was listening back to it, I don't think it's as clear as I want it to be. So I'm just going to kind of elaborate that I'm just comparing the central metaphor of the monolith in 2001 um, to, like, as, as, like, the monolith is this kind of intangible force driving humanity. I compare that to the central metaphor of Uncut Gems, um, where Howard and the Opal act as this sort of inspiration that kind of transcends mortality or whatever. So I was just trying to connect the monolith to the Opal and, like, and like to Howard in that way, the way Howard's connected to the Opal. And it's something that Josh Safi talks about a lot in interviews. That was kind of why I wanted to bring that up. And just as an example of how um, I am receptive to themes that are in 2001, I was just thinking that my problems were with the way it expresses itself. So I was just using that as a point of comparison. So that'll make sense later, hopefully. I mean, it might, it might still make sense later. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Hopefully that little, just laying it out like that might help something. I don't know. Um, and I think, oh yeah, I also want to say that by the end of this podcast, I think we really do hit, like, this great conversational stride. And it's hard when you're calling someone. Like I said, like, this is, like, the first time I call them. And we get a, just a little quick back and forth. And then we're, boom, right into the fucking podcast. So, like, it's, it's tough to get right into, like, that back and forth. So there, there is, um, we don't quite get to that sort of conversational level till kind of the end. But I recommend that you stick it out because there's great insights on the way Josh is just absolute passion for all the things he talks about and um really like enthusiastic personality i it's, it's just great so but yeah yeah stick around to the end and we also do hit on some pretty general points that i think are really universally applicable for any sort of creative types or even people that are um i, I mean i guess everyone's a, i think in some ways everyone's a creative type in terms of um how they engage with stuff and especially with the stuff we talk about at the end about um, the difference between perfect and good and what should we strive for. And the answer may not be what you think. So stick around to the end of the podcast.
Um, but anyway, I want to keep this short because the episode's so long. It's going to be such a long episode, but I think it's worth it. Um, I, I edited it down. So, like, yeah, obviously the first episode was just one take, um, front to back, me talking because I can only talk for an hour. Um, not even. I resort to random shit at the end. Um, but this one is, is pretty cut down. So if you know it's kind of weird speech jumps and stuff, which I'm sure there are because I'm not a professional audio editor by any means, I bet you that's just something where we got off on a bit of a tangent or got really specific about things where I just felt it didn't really flow with the episode. So I don't mean, I really hope it didn't misconstrue anything Josh said. Um, I, I'm going to run this uh, draft by him first before publishing it, obviously, and um, just to make sure there was nothing like out of context or anything. But yeah, I did cut it down. And I hope you enjoy this episode of me talking with Josh on the Articulating Insight podcast. I would I would say the thing I most value in a piece of art, no matter what it is, and this is going to not really be like a mind-blowing thing, but it's creativity. Yeah. Pure and simple. I, I kind of just will enjoy... I mean, I won't enjoy anything... On the basis of it being creative, mm -hmm. but that I can't usually really praise something if I don't really see any creati creativity in it at all. All of my favorite uh, films or music, I, I, almost all of it has some degree of creativity or something there, you know, in between the spaces even that really says something, even if it wasn't intentional. It just has some kind of a thing to say to me, I, I feel, almost. So, I'm, I'm not, like, super trained in any real medium. The main thing I do is writing, and I, I, I used to do a lot of stuff with video, and I'm gonna get back into that, but I just don't have a camera now. But the, the thing that I always try to do is just like think and just have ideas and w when you have enough ideas and they all come together to create this like big mammoth idea this this concept even if it's a thesis that's clumsy and falls apart easily even if some of the parts are weak like if you really have even a modicum of a clue of the kind of power that you possess uh, when you have nothing and, and, and what you can can do to really, like, stir yourself up, to really, like, get that spur-of-the-moment, like, lightning-in-a-bottle, like, idea just out there in any way. I just encourage that for everyone. You Like, I have a very, like, sometimes very sentimental view of art. Like, I it's just, like, looking at it with, like, childlike eyes. It's like seeing the world for the first time, but in a new way. Like, that's something that it is potential you know to happen with anything with any kind of music mm -hmm. with any kind of film and i listened to uh something by the composer morton feldman it's called for Bun bunita marcus all right uh it's a it's like a long really like i modern classical composition and it's all on the piano and one person playing the piano and it's very like sparse there's not a lot of even though it's long it's a long piece and it's not even close to the longest thing he's done 
it's like an hour and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. But the longest stuff he's done, it'll go on probably up to upwards to like six, seven hours. Uh, and and this piece though is only one instrument. It's only listening to this piano recording. And what really makes it special are are all the pauses, all the thought between every note. And then when you, when you hear the next one, it's just like for some reason it opens up this new gateway into like memories and just seeing some kind of vague image of of what's being spoken about without any words with hardly any noise or sound. It, it it's really interesting. And 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 the exact opposite of that to me is almost equally as powerful like uh, one of my favorite movies is Love Exposure. I love that movie to death. Uh, the director, Shion Sono, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I've seen a number of his movies. He's uh, uh, he, Sometimes he might need a little bit of quality control, but for the most part his films are very liberating and, and very unique, eclectic in, in styles and bursting with color and, and vibrance and energy. And that, I really just like that. I just love seeing something on the screen just, like, overwhelm me with energy and movement, you know? Mm-hmm. Even really simple things. It's very important when you're seeing a motion picture for it to really move uh, in, in some kind of a way. Uh, I, I, I was watching, like, there's a scene in uh, John Cassavetti's movie, uh, Woman Under the Influence. Mm-hmm where uh so the main character is played by peter falk and he's like a construction worker and he had to work all night and he has all of his uh uh construction buddies like go over to his house his wife played by gina rollins uh has to make them like something for breakfast she makes some spaghetti and when they're all like at the table eating spaghetti it's very like spontaneous all the actors a lot of them other than the two leads seem to be possibly amateur actors and there's a very improvis improvisational mood to a lot of the john cassavetti's films Mm -hmm. sometimes he'll like you know move the camera in a certain way that's decidedly uh not super smooth uh the films were shot on a very low budget they're some of the first like really like marketed as independent movies like movies that were made Mm -hmm. and there's often an improvisational feel because there's a very strong current of realism. Uh, and, and what I was seeing with that was there's not a lot happening on the screen. There's not a lot happening in the context of the film, at least not yet. And yet I was completely entranced in the moment. I felt exactly like I was there and that th- th- this is the kind of movement you would see. This is the kind of action. And just everything between even just between the words and the lines of dialogue, just looking into a character or an actor's eyes, even an extra can add something to a scene. It, it's all about this like huge picture. And even like the uh, way that, that scene made. in particular flows, where it goes from her having like a joyous moment with the extra co-workers, and then uh, Falk's character feeling the need to kind of shut it down and put a damper on things, and it's just yeah. like the way these kind of nuances happen and these character motivations come out in these very realistic like undertoned ways like it, I think that's, that's kind of a yeah something super is so good at mm-hmm. 
And when I saw that movie, it was like, uh, about around the same time I saw Seven Samurai. And I, I wrote a little bit of a mild comparison between the two because they both use those, these, the, just the, the camera and the, and the frame to a very unique end. I, I I see what's happening, and 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 the way that it is, it is this like bigger picture that's sort of slowly moving along, and you start to really catch on to every nuance and every point. Uh, it, it, not even like just from a filmic lens, but from like the storytelling mm -hmm. in those movies, you, it, it grows a little bit on you uh, the exact depths of the characters. Like at first, like you could just say, "Oh, a woman under the, under the influence is about a lady who's crazy or something," but that's not what it is about at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could say it's that based on like watching maybe like uh, two minutes of it and dismissing it. Mm -hmm. But you watch that movie, you get to know Gina Rollins, you get to know Peter Falk, and they both have serious issues, and they both have serious issues together, but in a way that like can't be expressed in a couple minutes mm -hmm. uh which is why you know and it, it's the same with seven samurai you can look at uh mifune's character in that and he seems like a fool at times but in the end like you really think he's a man who the first word that comes to your mind eventually is just honor you know he seems like such an honorable venerable person by the end of it and you really see how much has changed, and that movie doesn't even take place over, you know, all this this epic period of time. Even though mm -hmm. it's so long, it it takes place in like, I don't know, like a couple weeks. It's, yeah, and it's not a very like, uh, giant story. It, it takes place all in a village, uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. Very insular that movie, kind of, even though it's so big. It's a little bit of a contradiction inherently, but it it's kind of one of the things that really pulls at you and makes that really kind of a more memorable movie because you feel a bit more insular, so you feel more at home with the characters. Yeah. But then when the action's happening, it does have this, like, epic sweeping feel. Mm -hmm. Well, and then even just what you said there, insular but so big, isn't that kind of what art is? Like, art is supposed to compress... Uh, a variety of things from a person's lifetime to the history of humanity into like a two hour or an hour and a half time gap you know like it's it's all it's all the For microcosm sure. um i think that's that's what's so interesting and what, what uh, like you started off with was just talking about um art as an outlet of creativity and it's kind of what i got into on the in the first episode of this podcast where i talk about um that for me I guess I'll just, I'll just run this by you to see like if this fits with what you're saying, is that, to me, art is about the preservation of insight, where you have gained um, these particular sensitivities to things through your own experiences in life, and then similar to how, like I say, a grandparent would tell a children a, a story so they could learn something that they don't have to go through those same experiences to now understand, um, that's what art is, where suddenly someone can can understand these things about color, human relationships, um, a variety yeah. of things, and then distill it into something that's widely palatable and can now reach beyond the their smallness as an individual, you know? 
So does that kind of for fit sure, with like yeah. what, what you're saying? Or? Yeah, for the most part, it definitely fits the bill. Because, and, and, and to jump off of that idea of art as being insular but so big, like the idea of just an artist, you know, somebody who creates art somehow, when you look at the spectrum of art and, and, and the, the grandness of, of the scope and potential of that scope, I mean, it's kind of amazing that there is just an artist there to create it. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of these bigger things take a lot of collaborators, and thus, in a sense, many artists. But one of the th unique things, and one of the things that especially makes uh, a film uh, so, like, thrilling uh, and, and, and full at times is that if you really have more than one good artist there mm -hmm. there there's more than one like piece of art there almost like that there's an art to uh, a performance that could be separate from the art of the cinematography this and that mm -hmm. which may in, in a way you could argue that uh contradicts the I idea of an auteur mm -hmm. as being the, the the sole author of a film mm -hmm. and i would say i mean you know that, that's kind of like the classic theory when when people who don't really know much about film theory they know the auteur yeah and, and that's kind of me i don't know a crazy lot about like hardline theory yeah, I, well, I know either, a bit yeah. about criticism and history but mm -hmm. uh, I, I i'm i'm off my own train of thought but it's whatever i was gonna say it's true <laughs> for sure well i think that's important to recognize about like the director is the auteur is that like we shouldn't consider they're the person doing everything. Like, of course, like there are people who can multitask yeah. and stuff, but it's more that it, they're the coordinators. They're the people who make the decisions on um, who does what and all that. And ideally, the yeah. the, the people and it who... does it does depend. It's very important uh, depending on who the director is and what the point of the movie is. The vision there. Yeah. Some no. directors are more like self indulgent in a way. Mm -hmm. And in a way, like, that can be completely successful. Mm -hmm. and, and some directors are more controlling and want to manage everything more. Mm -hmm. While, like, you know, and I have, you know, favorite filmmakers who are on the polar opposite sides of that. Uh, I, one of my favorite filmmakers is Robert Altman, mm -hmm. and his movies are extremely improvisational mm -hmm. and at times almost like a. Not really like a documentary, but sort of bending it. Uh, mm -hmm. One of his most famous movies is Nashville mm -hmm. from 1975. And it's a very, like, overall loose-seeming <laughs> project. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen the movie. It's it, yeah. it ultimately does come together, and that's all fairly, like, grounded and makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a... Even though it does have uh, moments that are a little bit more tragic and, and moments that are more comedic, moments that are more goofy, and and even like the long extended song, song number, the musical numbers in the movie, mm -hmm. uh, some of them are just like making fun of it, like that for the sake of the children song <laughs> that Henry Gibson sings. It's iconic. <laughs> it's it's literally like, honestly, that song is disturbingly catchy. Yeah, and. That was the first I've, vinyl I, I ever bought, was the, the soundtrack to Nashville. It was my first vinyl. Oh, that's cool. 
the opening of that movie too is awesome. That that like with like it's the... like a weird like trailer before the movie almost. Yeah, you because know, it's like yeah, like and, the, and, and the commercial the, for the, the album. Picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just the beginning of the movie, and it kind of says everything. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I think, like, in a way, like, yeah, Altman did use like improvisational things, but that stuff in order to create that environment such that like people open up in the way that he was able to get people to and also to be able to coalesce all that stuff together into like a seamless product that does have like a a flow to it that that requires like a a a strong command over things and i think he he was totally uh he was totally into that for sure so and then yeah yeah and that's why like if you watch an altman movie you're gonna watch in like an Altman movie, like mm-hmm. Gosford Park seems like it's a million miles apart from Nashville, but they both employ such a similar like feeling at times mm-hmm. of this the the famous like Altman zoom he'll still do yeah his his camera work often is is like sometimes very wide and encompassing, and other times it really like just starts to hone in on something. It's not afraid of being a little bit spotty. Mm-hmm. Same with Cassavetes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a really appealing thing of movies of that era, too. Yeah. Well, that they weren't really afraid to be spotty. Yeah, exactly. And well, and that's something I kind of talked about in the last episode was that um, a lot of media criticism now focuses on, like, was this good or bad cinematography, good or bad acting? But, like, conventionally, those films aren't pretty. Like, in, like, a, you know, like... 2001 like ultra symmetry like kind of Kubrick sense but those they work perfectly for the style and sensibility those guys wanted to get across so I think think that makes them like absolutely effective yeah and a huge thing about like yeah even though it's not like these aren't really like pretty shots these aren't symmetrical shots but in a sense like you're really like seeing a thing happen like just that 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 uh huge like uh car uh accident yeah. thing that happens where, where all those cars crash into each other even though it's in the middle of an almost like documentary mood movie at times that's mm. such an obviously staged yeah moment but it's not it doesn't detract from it at all it's funny and it's ex- it's like this is what happened it's ridiculous yeah just point out let that something's ridiculous and that's amazing mm-hmm. that's why comedy exists so you know you wouldn't say like Usually, you know, if, if like, Borat was in, like, fucking Schindler's List, like, that would not usually pass as, like, a good performance. But it's an amazing performance <laughs> uh, in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, well, then a Borat and Schindler's List, that's basically Jerry Lewis's Day the Clown Cried. So, I mean, there you go. Uh. Yeah. Fingers crossed that that finally comes out. We'll get it. I, mean, I know we will. Uh. Yeah. What, that, what an icon. Um... So, um, what was it? To, oh, yeah, to go off the Altman thing, I just real quick I just wanted to bring up one last thing is that you bring up, like, his kind of use of absurdism in that car crash scene. Like, well, they not absurdism, but, like, you know, obviously some, some more crazy elements. And to think of the way he uses that, and yeah. also in, in Bruce McCloud and Three Women, with um, Three Women, to, like, he manages oh, to yeah. perfectly. Three emulate. Women's. 
it's man so good like holy shit but like that film is a dream Three women is crazy yeah it's so crazy yeah. because he manages because of his way of just understanding the way things flow and like this kind of uh, uh, like accounting for the mercurial kind of like intangible things that that can happen by not obsessively like yeah, blocking it, it, everything three down. women somehow yeah and and the like that's another movie where it's like you could say in ways uh the cinematography isn't conventionally like perfect mm -hmm. or whatever but that's such a pretty experience it's almost ethereal at times yeah but at the same time it's like intimidating yeah uh, like those scenes at the beginning when you first see like uh shelly duvall working mm -hmm. with with the old people, old people and, yeah. the, and, and the like steamy water mm -hmm. that's such a that's just one of the first things you see in that movie mm -hmm. and it it shouldn't be as creepy but enthralling as it is, it's just a bunch of old people and Shelley Duvall, but it's it's kind of like I really need to see where this goes. Like, what am I witnessing here? Because there's something so foreboding about this, but so like uh, faint and soft about the, some of the textures of, and these colors. Mm -hmm. it, it, and that movie's like, I don't know if I would call it funny. But I I remember that guy at like who 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 owns that the gun range. He's at that like, yeah. He's at that weird like abandoned gun range with the bar. <laughs> that guy, <laughs> that guy is, he's funny and I don't know like what I would think if I met a guy like that. Like I don't. It's just completely abandoned, without too much of an explanation, and it's just where he hangs out. Like, can, like, what's the movie where he's just, like, there all day? <laughs> yeah. Because for the most part, and I don't know how we met Shelley Duvall, mm. and how he's meeting women, like, a, a few decades his senior, <laughs> where he, when he just does nothing. But, yeah, like, that's, like, so weird. But that is a guy out there. Mm. Like, there are people who just are in these bizarre circumstances. I, I just wanted to have some conversations about some... I went through your ratings on uh, on Rate Your Music or Films, and I just thought I would just kind of go through some of them and just see um, how we can kind of ha hash these out. I don't oh, know. Sure. Can figure out stuff. So, one star on the live-action Scooby-Doo movie. I need to know why. I gotta know why. When I was a kid, I watched it. It made me very uncomfortable. Weird. That's like and the that's opposite the main thing I remember about it. This is so I used to watch the film obsessively. I, I, Oh, yeah, see, it, it made me feel like I was doing something wrong when I watched it. <laughs> maybe, I, you know what, maybe I, I had a kind like of similar the, feeling, but I liked I liked All the that. little, like, adult jokes in it, like, I knew they were, like, adult jokes, but I was like, someone's gonna get mad at me. Which is weird, because <laughs> when I was, like, 12, I was like, I'm watching A Clockwork Orange now. <laughs> but, uh, that, something about that made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I just, <laughs> and I was, like, really little. Yeah. No, I just love. Although how... I've, I, I, looking back on it, mm -hmm. and I actually watched it a few times. Part of me did like it. I was attracted to it. I don't know why it is so low, mm -hmm. because looking back on it, I've the cast is really solid. Right, that's uh, what I was gonna say. Really like, perfect cast. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, and it's just like it's just willingness to just be like, 
the stupidest like thing that kids would like ever. Like it, it's just absolute commitment to the the dumb gags and everything and everyone involved. I just I don't know. I find those movies a joy. When I was uh, when I was a kid, actually, I liked the second one a lot. I Same. watched that one a few times. Same. Yeah. I thought the second one was cool. Hell yeah. Because it had all the monsters and stuff, and I was like, this is a. A great work of art, right here. <laughs> exactly, the fucking little skeleton dudes. You gotta love them. Uh, okay, so mm-hmm. we've hashed out that. Um, I gotta know one star on the first Rolling Stones album. I mean, really, I kind I like the Rolling Stones, but it was mostly like an album of covers that I sort of listened to. I mean, I I've only heard it at most two times a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I, I like Rolling Stones. I like when they're like, uh, I sometimes I like when they're doing ballads, and sometimes I like just the straight blues rock. But the really like early stuff didn't have like their that sort of uh, vigor that made it their their, their stuff really more unique uh, and st- stands out. But mm. I don't really know that much about the Rolling Stones. I haven't listened to too much of them. Yeah, so well, I couldn't I couldn't say too much. Uh, one star is definitely harsh. Mm-hmm. Actually, that uh, one might have been a one point five. I think I might have misspoke there, but yeah, still. It probably it, it probably is, uh, but it's you know fairly harsh rating. Mm-hmm. But it is something that doesn't occupy my mental space ever, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it's just so like, I don't really have much of a feeling about. And it. if it was like for like was it two by five? I think was another one or um. So some of their other early ones, uh, I think like Rolling Stones number two or whatever it's called, those I think fit more there. But I just think, um, well, one, Bo Diddley said that uh, whoever plays guitar on Monet, it might have been Brian Jones, I can't remember, um, that uh, he was the one guy who could actually replicate his guitar style. And I, I think it's a really, I think all the covers on that album are really invigorating. And then you have um, Tell Me You're Coming Back to Me, which I think is their best early kind of like pop like not quite a ballad but like 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 pop song i think it's like that's like an immaculate that's one of their best singles um so yeah i don't know i just i, I have an affection for that album so i just wanted to, to hash that i just wonder if you had some like yeah. crazy well i'm sure that like uh no i don't have like a huge like beef with them because mm-hmm. i'm sure like instrumentally it's very good and mm-hmm. fairly energetic mm-hmm. i'm looking at it now yeah and for English me like newest hit mate i think that album's cool in comparison um, even though I like them, but the early Beatles albums do feel very kind of like white boy rock, kind of like they, they're a lot poppier. Oh a lot yeah, more definitely. Um, a lot of the reason why I would give like a Beatles album, an early Beatles album, way higher than a Rolling Stones one, mm-hmm. isn't even that I think it's better. Mm-hmm. But I have a long history with the Beat. Like when I that's yeah. the first music I ever listened to. Oh, same. Yeah. So absolutely. I know like all those songs. Yeah. You know, and they're great albums. I'm just saying, like, I think it's cool to look at in context. That, like, the Rolling Stones are doing something way dirtier and, like, more, like, closer mm-hmm. to something that Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and all those guys were doing when rock was kind of rougher and, like, first around. So I, I just think, for that reason, it's kind of a cool album. But, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to hash that out. Um, and then the last one. This one I'm really interested in here. Uh, Lolly Shit Chest Flattener. I gotta know what's so objectionable about lolly shit chest flattener. I just simply don't like uh, that style of music. Mm. I thought it was very uh, tasteless, frankly. Mm. Now, I like tasteless stuff, Mm -hmm. but I just... It sort of... You see, it wasn't so much that it's like... Because musically, there's some 
decent stuff about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very uh, chaotic and, mm -hmm. and has a sort of m crazy energy to it. Mm -hmm. But one of the ma main problems with it is it makes me deeply uncomfortable listening to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me feel like I'm a criminal listening to it. Yeah. And uh, it didn't. It felt like it came from a bad place. Yeah. I mean, dancing around like the obvious mm -hmm. is pretty funny to put it, but it does feel like it came from a place of uh, of not eth ethical feelings towards uh, children, mm. and I didn't enjoy that aspect. And I also thought it was kind of like half-assed way to be edgy and epic. And but it was really just kind of a a mess. Uh, there's some very good like breakcore, you know, niche IDM sub 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 genre uh, stuff out there mm -hmm. that's really noisy and creative and heavy. Mm -hmm. It it kind of felt like a failed attempt at emulating that in a way which also incorporated really embarrassing and upsetting corners of internet culture, which I just I just did not like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like. I have no objection about um, embarrassing or upsetting things because I think, I don't know, if someone's going to explore them, someone should. But I, I can totally see, because I've, <laughs> I've listened to everything Lolly shit's done because um, I didn't, it was funny, oh. when, I, when I, that was like when I first got into music, when I was first like browsing slash Mew in like 2013 or whatever, and um, I just, I was just yeah, like, no, well, literally... I, like, I like anime, so I'll just listen to this. Yeah. And I listen to the whole thing. And yeah. they go deep. I listen to it fairly early, too. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, Lolly shows this one album called um, Little Girls on Drugs that is genuinely one of the scariest things I've ever heard. It is so... Yeah, that's a freaky fucking album, so... I'll, I'll, I'll listen to it. I am interested. I don't want to, like, accuse them of... Of too much because I know it's sort of like tongue in cheek, mm -hmm. and I do find it kind of funny. Uh, sometimes, I mean, again, my rating for that is also pretty harsh, mm -hmm. and my review is a lot uh, less harsh because oh, I didn't it was see a review a for it years ago. <laughs> I have a review for it that was written in 2018. It's not really a refined review. Mm -hmm. uh, I but I said it wasn't really bad in my review. Okay. I said it has its moments here and there, and that it wasn't impossible to listen to, but it, the potential that it had seemed to be kind of wasted, sure. which probably is the more actual my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I, I just I tried listening to it again. It was annoying me, so yeah. I was like, "Screw this." No, I feel ya. Um, and you know, if, usually if... If something's called like lolly core or like something core. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to hear it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I would, it, just as a flip side, there are two albums that are kind of of that style in terms of, like, taking this weird niche of, like, anime internet music and doing something more with it. Um, Gore Shit's My Love Feels All Wrong is pretty good. And um, Hisu's, um, fuck, it's got this long-ass title of, like, I love you when I was with you and I loved you when I missed you or some shit like that. And actually, I, I've talked I might have listened to that. There's one that I've listened to that's really actually, even though it was like a lollycore album or something, yeah, it was like actually pretty good. Yeah, I was, you were really beautiful when I loved you. You're beautiful when I lost you, or whatever. That, that's that's it. I actually, I've talked to, I've talked to the guy. I feel like that. that. I feel like I must have heard it. I I I I have an image in my head of what it is. It's got the girl. Is it on the, the beach. one with? Oh, wait. 
on the cover. Yes, yes, yeah. I have heard that. Awesome. I actually, I do like that one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, yeah, yeah, and I've talked to the because um, I they have to... another one. They have another one. You are special. And that's and that exactly, is exactly yeah, why but I so much. under the that's a very good one. Mm-hmm, under the pseudonym Made Assault, which actually the album cover for that I use as the profile picture on my AMV channel and prostrate constantly. Um, oh. Yeah, well, I, I, it's a, an edit I did for a cassette I made of it that I still have. Um, and um, yeah, that, that person's cool. I've talked to him a bit. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, their stuff's pretty good. If you're gonna do that kind of music, then I do like it, it's a bit more. Uh, it feels a bit more high spirited, sort of trying to. I, 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 yeah, I really liked mm-hmm. th- that. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and like, they're cool. They're cool people. Um, what, what else do I got here? Well, I guess it's that time. Um, of me, <laughs> we're gonna have the infamous Zane two thousand one conversation because I noticed that that's one of your favorite movies, and that's a movie I, I I've had trouble I... engaging with. Um, so, so I oh, like. To, uh, all right. I, I like to start off with, um, if you want to talk about what you find that that movie that does, like, or what is that like? What do you find exceptional about it? I want to know. Okay. Well, again, the way I do look through art, some of it is quite personal. Mm-hmm. So I did see that movie early age, because uh, I heard about it in like a book. Mm-hmm. which talked about the HAL 9000 computer, and I was like, this sounds like an epic movie where there's some suspenseful stuff that's going to happen. It's going to be exciting. And then mm-hmm. the first, like, two minutes, three minutes of the movie is a black screen with, you know, the weird modern classical music yeah, playing. And I didn't like that. I was, like, six, so I didn't enjoy that. And then it was, like, the Bump Monkeys... For like twenty minutes, and I didn't like that as a kid. Mm-hmm. I eventually liked it, but when I was six, I was like, I want to see the computer. Mm-hmm. And then it was a bunch of stuff in space for like another twenty minutes. And then my mom was like, "It's like eight o'clock. You have to go to bed, Josh. We can't finish it." Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a good opinion on it at first. Uh, but when I grew up to be ten years old, I actually started to like the movie. I enjoyed the monkeys then, and I enjoy them very much now. And I think it really has lasted with me all these years since I was like 10. And I think it is very profound, but in a way which does not speak. And I enjoy its refusal to really speak to you in a, in a way which is uh, sort of normal, functional, man-to-man language. It's very very much uh, an opera but not with a regular conflict not with the regular set of characters really what it is is witnessing ideas sort of grow over time and it is something that is worth analyzing and looking into but one of the main things also is really just the environment of that movie being able to be there uh, in space uh, even if you don't really know these characters well, uh, encountering what what they encounter is something uh, astounding to capture in a way that I that I think that it, it was captured. Like 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 rarely is a movie about space and these incredible things happening. Uh, rarely does it really communicate to the same way uh, the importance 
and power of those moments and and shimmers onto the completely unfathomable uh, inexplicable events uh, that are possible out there beyond the world you know it is a movie that is beyond uh, what we normally consider it's sort of beyond the menial conflicts of our lives and it's sort of the ultimate epic story and even as somebody who doesn't watch a lot of those like ultimate epic stories i mean it, it just feels so much more important and so much more grand and magnificent because it is about something so much bigger to us all and something that couldn't just be uh simply written down even though arthur c clark god bless his soul uh wrote the novelization and wrote many more books afterward uh the 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 novels are good but um the, the there's something about the movie where it is it, sort of the only way you could have really communicated uh the magnitude of what was experienced all right yeah no like and that, that's a that's an interesting way to put it um like I, i'm just thinking from like it's funny we kind of start from the same perspective where i saw it really young like i was like 10 or something or you know, really young when I first saw it, um, and, and I watched it, and I was just bored, and I didn't get anything from it. And I didn't know what was happening, but I never really had another moment where it clicked. Like I would think about things in the movie and be like, mm. "Oh, that was cool," and then when I went to revisit it, I I, I just left frustrated um, because uh, I just found nothing to latch onto for me. Maybe because I'm a person who, who finds it hard to think beyond individual terms like i i find it much easier to connect with mm -hmm. singular personalities um, oh, yeah. characters in a way and so i find that movie hard See, to connect with yeah that's definitely mm -hmm. and uh, well like, the the an, an an interesting thing is that is a movie which does not have a person to click with it mm -hmm. doesn't really have that even though i do think in many ways it's a deeply human movie and eventually you have to click on to somebody by the end uh, it's not really a movie that's about like a couple people doing something. It's 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 this really grand like uh, insane thing. It's like holding this giant orb of pure energy and forcing somebody to stare into it for two and a half hours. It's kind of like that. And and in some ways that is truly, truly, truly like the most almost orgasmic sort of like explosion of color and genius and miracle and in other ways it's just going to turn you blind so it, it's not for everyone yeah i, I just want because like i have that feeling of orgasmic sort of feeling of understanding when i watch something like buffalo 66 or one from the heart where these are films that uh, uh, relate to personal principles on a way that I mm -hmm. can immediately latch on to these grounded insights into, into human behavior, into things that yeah. I can think about the next day and maybe the rest of my life about what do I want to do, you know? Like, like what can I do with my limited mm -hmm. time on this earth to be meaningful? But with 2001, I think yeah. in the way we were talking about art earlier as a way to preserve personal insight into things, things that you've experienced and stuff, to me, I think the kind of clinical style of 2001 and its broad way of engaging with humanity in this, in this, um, as like this, uh, like collective, like this mass, it, I just find it. I, mm -hmm. I just I can't parse it. I can't I can't engage with it that way because yeah. I don't see what Kubrick experienced or what what anyone involved experienced in order that they're preserving that I can internalize to my life and worldview.
That is fair. I would say that one of the things that is actually trying to make some kind of an insight on, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit hard to even perfectly articulate, which is actually like what seems to be detracting you is one of the things that kind of makes it attractive to me, mm. which is that it is, it just is one of the only movies I can really just say it, it transcends just grounding something. It, 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 it goes above and beyond the ground and it just looks. And if you, if you just like completely remove yourself from it, it's almost more forgiving on you or more, not even forgiving, but more, more palatable. Mm. Yeah. That is true. Like, like part of what you do see in art and what you really value in it will be, in a way, challenged. In a way, in, a, in another way, just kind of like discarded, mm. and that is kind of like a stressful thing to have to deal with. And that is why it is a movie that sort of causes a lot of argument. Oh, and it is kind of surprising that it has the kind of reach it does. Mm. But I, I think one of the main reasons it does have that reach is that uh, not only is it technically like a really, really like regardless of your feelings emotionally really like well-crafted well-produced picture and a spectacle mm -hmm. uh but the cool thing about it is you see these different events and what you have to connect to is more this this i this observer which is completely anonymous it does sort of force you to separate yourself from your ideas of yourself and kind of make you see the universe as not the universe experienced by me or by someone I know or somebody I don't know but the universe just as it is and as it grew and sort of technology and communication as they grew and why they grew and sort of asking these things like really what is out there and what would it be like to look into the face of something which is uh, inconceivable according to uh, our minds and so in some ways it is this unique and elaborate thought experiment and, and in other ways it's just this pure experiment it's just look you know wash this vision over you even if it is scatterbrained at times even if it is meanderingly slow there there's i would say even though it is kind of a uh, void of that really like superhuman warm touch that uh one would want it does have a personality to it it does have a playfulness to it with the classical music playing over the really like advanced spectacular uh creations of mankind juxtaposed against the the spectacular feats of space and that are just naturally there and how really at the end of the day what has already been can't really be outmatched by something made by man something artificial you know so it, even though it doesn't really have that human element there more than anything, it does kind of argue for it and sort of look at what we already have and kind of uh, fawn over it in a weird way. Like, it is kind of like a statement 
not necessarily against technology, but sort of almost making fun of technology by the end, I would say, mm-hmm. with with the last stretch uh, being content that is unfathomable to hum- unfathomable to human beings, and very uh, abstract and very out of the bounds of what a human could comprehend and what a person could make you know it's not a spaceship that's really spectacular at the end of the day even though we marveled at that uh really what changes everything uh and what makes hell 9000 seem so puny in comparison because he's ultimately you know vanquished uh are are these completely cosmic psychedelic explosions of what's always been, what always will be, what will outlast everything. And that's kind of something that will, if it clicks, seem like the most important possible concept in the moment. And that's why with the people it does click with, there are so many people who will insist it's the best movie of all time because it it does do that in a way, it, it does make you realize how puny you are in a way which kind of makes you appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm glad you're willing to take the time to actually like hash out all these ideas and stuff because that was my most frustrating thing about the movie was that I would go and read the reviews from people and they would all talk about what a, a, a mind-blowing experience it was. It was like they were all in on this thing that I didn't get where it was just like, everyone was just talking about like, just saw an IMAX, best experience of my life and that's it. And then it has like 2,000 likes and it's like, well, you're not, what is, no one's talking about the movie. They're just talking about um, like yeah. their awe at this thing, and I, I just like I that was my frustration with it. And um, Which, was... <laughs> although it is frustrating, it is kind of fitting for it to have that existence because, like, your average person, if they see that and it does click, they're not going to be putting it into all the all these long winded words. Uh, it, it does kind of just have this like. Oh my god, what what is this that I just watched? Like it seems mind blowing, but it to me it really blows all the senses. I mean it's it's heart blowing. Uh I I think it's very beautiful. Okay. Yeah. No, absolutely I can see it. I just Yeah. I, I, I think what's interesting what you said about um the it, the I would assume, like, you mean, like, the alien influence, the monolith, all this stuff, being about the stuff that, the the thing that has always been intangible and will be here throughout humanity, regardless of what, what, and my qualms regarding its ideas about artificial intelligence aside, dealing with what the movie presents, um, it's, like, it's about how we transcend our, our material, um, existence and all that and, and achieve some sort of transcendence which is great but and that's why i think its influence on uncut gems makes it because oh, uncut gems is one of my favorite films and i think what that oh communicates, mine too love uncut yeah gems. no it's phenomenal and the, josh Safdie in, in the interview says that 2001 was a huge touchstone for him and i didn't understand why but now i'm starting to connect what you're saying to what the the um what uncut gems does because with uncut gems beginning and end um panning through the opal into and out of Howard, it's saying that Howard is this opal. And it's I, I think its argument in the film, and in that way to tie it to 2001, is that um, to be the, the inspiration, to be the um, an, a piece of iconography in the way Howard is, uh, as someone who just 
with with reckless abandon would go for these massive risks for with big reward he is sowing this inspiration that will last forever in the same way the opal is passed down throughout history as this totem that eventually reaches Kevin Garnett yeah. and, and and provides this immense inspiration so in that way you achieve immortality and, and go on forever so now I can see those parallels now between 2001 and um, and Uncut Gems and with, with Uncut Gems it's something that I can internalize to me as an individual and so maybe I just, I, maybe engage with 2001 through that lens may may help me with it somewhat um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah and again you know obviously Uncut Gems is about a guy it's about a character mm-hmm. and that's a little bit easier to immediately connect with because mm-hmm. 2001 a space odyssey at, at, like yeah there's the conflict with hal but that doesn't happen until like like two I hours mean, around not yeah it happens like deep into the movie yeah it's not really like the only thing that happens mm-hmm. uh if, there's so much context put before it and it's a lot of it does just sort of speak in metaphors it it just speaks in a separate tongue mm-hmm. but by the end of it uh ideally you would have uh sort of a picture as to what you just experienced and uh, an idea as to why it all comes together and why you feel the way you do by the end of it uh in some ways 2001 is very honest mm-hmm. but it's honest in a way which feels almost wooden at times mm-hmm. and kind of frustratingly cryptic at times or just like standoffish like if 2001 was a person they'd barely talk to you uh and and you'd probably feel uncomfortable around them half the time mm-hmm. but if you did get to talk to them it would kind of be awesome they, they'd really say a lot of important stuff <laughs> sure yeah um and i i think uh you know i was just thinking of the way i engage with characters I think an interesting flip side is uh, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, which is kind of, in always a precursor to 2001, where Intolerance deals with the entirety of human history, drawing parallels between all, all these different time periods and showing about love's struggle throughout the ages, about um, in, in the way love is this motivating force for all these people to accomplish these great things and fight against these, these great evils. And that's a film I connect greatly with and, and see that this massive importance. I think it's just the fact that 2001 deals with... Um, <laughs> deals with... I don't fucking know. I mean, I guess 2001 deals with it more... It deals with space, I guess. Space, sort of. Uh, yeah. And space in a couple ways. Space is in, you know, space between characters, space, uh, you know, spatial awareness in, in a mm-hmm. literal sense and mm-hmm. outer space. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, a space odyssey. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I just... It's funny because you would think if it's an odyssey, you, you immediately think of the odyssey, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, is a pretty like clear through line a hero's journey mm-hmm. and that's not what 2001 space odyssey is like at all yeah and, you, well, you and know, what you can like gauge from bowman's path kind of could... parallels in some ways but again that's not what the, the movie's kind of yeah. central thing is yeah yeah the whole like a 2001 space odyssey as like a whole just mm-hmm. looking at it it is a space odyssey it's not a human odyssey it's not the odyssey as we would understand it it's not a hero's journey mm-hmm. from the perspective of a human hero it's from the perspective of fucking space so it is like a completely different wavelength it's just 
not as relatable in a lot of ways. Yeah, but no, and I think real, to, real big. Yeah, I, I think to be like kind of hippy dippy catchphrasey about it. 2001's about outer space, and I'm about inner space. <laughs> like the can lyric. Oh damn, dude! Of the like, yeah. but like, but I, like that's what um like I think like Evangelion is is a, is a show about inner space and like finding some sort of kind of cosmic significance within the self like like the way it breaks apart in the last few episodes yeah and um it's, and so, so i just find it way easier like, like for me the last two episodes of the two of evangelion are like oh, the yeah. most immediate like i've wanted to see this like made but i i haven't made it myself stuff ever like and it's just so immediate with me. I know a lot of people have trouble with that. Whereas 2001 is the opposite. It's just like, I, I, I just can't connect with it. And I think that's just a differing in sensibilities mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. Also, you mentioned one movie that, and, and I might have to go kind of soon. Oh, sure, sure. Like, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes. Sure, yeah. But you did mention a movie, which I watched again very recently. Mm. And I would say I'm a huge fan of now. Mm. Uh, Buffalo 66. I watched that again the other day. Yeah. And, I mean, it is a movie that deserves discussion, mm-hmm. for sure. That is, and it's really good, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, what can you say about uh, Mr. Gallo that hasn't already been said? He's uh, <laughs> he's maybe one of the most, and I don't mean this in an entirely positive way, mm-hmm. but... He's a pretty incredible uh, person, mm-hmm. and in some ways unpredictable. Very self-destructive, too, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. kind of really reflected in the movie. Mm-hmm. Even though there's a lot of like self-love there, mm-hmm. you know, that people always like to comment on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it, the reason why it doesn't just come across as like pure hubris. Mm-hmm. Is it's not really that. It's mm-hmm. sometimes Vincent Gallo doesn't really seem to like. That he is the way he is, but he mm-hmm. doesn't really want to be bothered by, you know, people's BS because he doesn't think it will really change too much. Mm-hmm. And Buffalo 66 felt like a really good way of channeling a lot of his inner, like, pain and disappointment in himself and the way everything turns out for him. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to, like, just straight up make fun of his character at times. Mm-hmm. And I think he would barely, he would not admit that even. It'd be like, no, I'm fucking great in the movie, and it's all great. But I don't think he would. No, I, I don't. Know. I think he, he uh, maybe, I, I, maybe. I, I, well, but if, I don't if you think heard he the Brown Bunny commentary. He thinks he's he's a. Uh, he think himself as a character is a very laughable thing. I, I don't know. I I think. I, oh, yeah. I mean, Brothel Sixty Six changed my life, and I I was I became deeply like deeply obsessed with Gallo. Like, it, yeah. yeah, and um, Gallo is interesting because. One of the things I like about him, though, is that mm-hmm. when I think of, like... Because I'll have, like, long, like, theories about stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the main filmmakers who, if anybody... If I if he heard, like, any of the shit I think about his movies, I feel like he would tell me to fuck off. And I really kind of like that mm-hmm. about him. Like, because honestly, yeah. But at the same time, no. And I think he understands all that, which makes... It, a lot more compelling, but mm-hmm. he he does he communicates in his own uh, way. That's mm-hmm. very, you know, 
when applied to art especially super effective yeah uh, well because and brown bunny really good too mm -hmm. well yeah because he is super airtight like super airtight which is funny because mm -hmm. there's so much misinterpretation about his films but if you really look into them every single element serves a central purpose and is all going towards these metaphors oh, for that, he, sure. that he wants to yep. apply in the broadest senses buffalo 66 is really like that's a movie that was it feels very efficiently made like really like serves a purpose every moment to moment mm -hmm. really in a successful way yeah and a lot of the scenes sort of parallel each other pay off and, and it's also really so funny yeah no it's <laughs> really good funny and 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 gallo's character is so funny Billy at Brown. times and sometimes he's being like sometimes it's like he's being such an asshole that it's funny mm -hmm. sometimes he's genuinely pretty funny yeah and it was like it is a movie i find pretty relatable well of uh, course yeah well that's the, like the whole point of the movie is to capture the complexes yeah. that have only become more relevant as times went on of of um being stuck in this image of a kid and, and also a victim like and uh, I feel like those complexes yeah. have just spread and spread, and Buffalo 66 has just gained in relevance in that way. And, like, you know, it's kind of like a cheesy thing to be like, this movie's about masculinity. Mm. But Buffalo 66 is one of the main movies I've seen which really talks about masculinity in, like, a way that is... Like, there are multiple times in which Vincent Gallo says, like, fairly aggressively, like, don't look at me. Yeah. And I just think that's kind of, like, a big trait of what can make masculinity such a hot button topic is that in a lot of ways the way masculinity has been uh used throughout history is kind of a tug of war of the self where you really want to be admired but at the same time you don't want that i, I don't like know the vulnerability exactly how to put that it. comes with that yeah like there's yeah there's a lot of vulnerability with that and you want people to know because it's really there with you but at the same time you can't let people look you can't let people see mm -hmm. and it's almost sort of a brave movie because it seems like you know gala would be uh, uh fairly touchy on that and, mm -hmm. and through some of his like intentionally almost arrogant uh statements mm -hmm. uh in the past like sort of sort of uh try to stabilize that but mm -hmm. really the act of both of his films feel really not only self-critical and also like super insular and about a person and really in a way that's like actually relatable mm -hmm. even people who like really want to shit on gallo all day and call mm -hmm. him a bad guy and all that stuff like mm -hmm. you know there's there like i've read him i've read shit that he said and i've been like this is like <laughs> terrible to say mm -hmm. i don't know but like yeah. but but i can't say that he's all one way or another way because you look at the art and it has those nuances and even just looking at his face he at once he seems like he's really sure of himself and really confident and and at the same time he seems like he doesn't know where the fuck he is and he just wants to get home and he wants to get back to some place that's perfectly safe and makes sense to him yeah and, and it's, it's sort of reflecting his relationship with he calls him goon that guy on the phone yeah his thing with him is kind of like vincent gallo and you realize eventually like he kind of 
does feel for Rocky, does like him mm-hmm. by the end before he's about to do the 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 undoable deed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, he, and of course he has to reverse that right afterwards, which is very funny. Yeah. Uh, and but you know you see like he really likes him, and it's kind of just a weird like. I don't know, reenactment of him trying to almost be a father figure to this character, but at the same time being a dick to him and being his friend and, and being there for him, but in a way where he's just likes bossing him around mm-hmm. and insulting him because that's just kind of what he understands mm-hmm. uh, is this sort of bossing around and being really quiet, but being a person. And then, mm-hmm. you know, his dad in the movie played by... Ben My man, Ben Gazzara, the great man. actor. Hell yeah. Yeah. And he's great in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fool's that, Rush That's in. another super... Oh my god, that scene is beautiful. Yeah. And then right after, he's just like... No more! No more. <laughs> and that line delivery kills. Yes, yeah, so good. Like, oh, what a but, legend. But after such like a tender moment, that's really a pretty good encapsulation of that movie mm-hmm. where it's like Gallo will give you something really beautiful and vulnerable and honest about himself mm-hmm. and then he'll just yell at you and spin yeah. your face well, and because that's, and that's Gallo's it's father. scary that, that's actually Vincent Gallo's dad singing the song that's on that that uh the fools rush in that's actually Vincent oh, that's Gallo really singing. cool yeah it's so great <laughs> um but yeah, no, like I, I totally see see what you're saying about that and everything. I think an interesting about the relationship with Goon in that movie is that Billy needs someone with a relationship th- that is so fundamental, like like a very basic. It's like to, to use a cringe kind of trope, but a, a sundere. It's <laughs> you you create this absolutely yeah, no, basic like antagonization relationship just so you can get close to someone, and so. It, it, there's no nuance, there's no subtext, it's just absolutely understood what's going on, and yet, then suddenly everything becomes nuance and subtext because you care for each other, but you're locked in this, like, Tom and Jerry kind of routine. Um, for sure. So, yeah, I think that, mm-hmm. that, that's something that's, that's beautiful. Also, there. also can't mention that movie without um, uh, Miss Christina Ritchie. Very, oh. very good in that movie. Oh, my God. And uh, yeah, very beautiful woman. Yeah. And she's great in Speed Racer too. Check out Speed Racer. <laughs> yeah, I, I went on a huge dude, Speed Racer. I watched diet Speed Racer again recently. Yeah, dude, that movie's really also another movie which actually is in a way about art mm-hmm. in a very beautiful way. Yeah, uh, legit great movie. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Christina Ritchie's so good. Uh, hand uh, clap for her, everybody at home. Uh, great lady, and. Uh, yeah. Uh, imagine you know, being Vincent Gallo. Really good career. She's not. <laughs> I was going to say. Imagine being Vincent Gallo, though, because well, he is that... kind of. What he said about her after that, honestly. Well, it's probably the stuff that's made me the most annoyed with him. Well, but no, okay. <laughs> I, I know, I, I understand. Uh, and he was being his classic, like, I'm going to be the Republican stereotype and get mad at women. But in his defense. Um, she was a big part of the movie not receiving distribution because she was one of the big name stars in it and she absolutely refused to do any promotion for it. So th- there's some justification there. But uh, regardless of that, um, yeah. I, 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 I wasn't just I trying like to turn it back to fat. <laughs> He called her no, fat. No, legit, too. my main criticism is that he called her fat, which, one, no, and two, come on, dude. But hey, you like, know, legit, it's, it's him imagine being, being with Christina Ritchie. He is in character, of course, but yeah. it's still, 
it's a character that's intentionally inflammatory and mm -hmm. that's one thing where it's you know we can't be saying this about miss Ritchie in this film gallo <laughs> it's true but I, I was gonna say i wasn't just trying to turn the conversation back to gallo i was gonna say imagine being vincent gallo and seeing like a 12 year old christina ricci or however, however old she is in the adams family and being like he went and saw the movie five times he was so obsessed with her and was like i need her in my movie and she was like fucking 12 <laughs> what a fucking icon oh boy that is a gallo move. It's a gallo move. And then moment. to be like, and then to be like, she's fucking fat in my moves. Like, come on, man. Come on, gallo. Well, but he's it, never damn, denied a solid ass cast, by the way, though. Yeah, well, a solid, a solid ass cast, cast where he hates. Well, I think he only hates uh, Richie and uh, Angelica Houston, but still. Uh, but he's never besmirched so, Richie. So all the women. <laughs> All it's the true. women. It's true. Which, honestly, another perfect character well, moment. For well, Gallo. actually, he liked the, the I forget Although which Arquette I he was does... in it. He liked the Arquette that was in it. He had a big, was a big fan of her, but that's all I know. Oh, yeah. Who plays Wendy Arquette Balsam. is great, too. Yeah. She's the ultimate Pulp Fiction girl, by the way. I can see I'm, I'm going to stand by that. People go all goo-goo-ga for, for Miss Uma Thurman, but I think Roseanne Arquette is uh, I, I not even like... In like a, a horny way, just very like, has just a cool like thing going for her in that movie. She, Even though she's in a very short uh, time. She's the like uh, that, that whole that, that was fucking trippy chick, right? Isn't that what she says? Is that her? Yeah, she has all the piercings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one who has all the piercings. Then John Travolta's like, "There's a bitch with all this shit on her face." And he goes, like, that's my oh, wife. Yeah, yeah was it was. That's my favorite stretch of that movie. That's so good. That's, that's really, and that's from yeah. a story um, that actually came from uh, Martin Scorsese's um, American Boy. They're, they actually that whole heroin um, uh, <laughs> sequence is actually a story from the the gun dealer from Taxi Driver's life that he just told. It's a weird thing. But I was gonna Damn, say uh, Pam cool. Greer was supposed to play that role, but. Um, the, when he, when Tarantino started thinking hey. about it, he was like, "No one's gonna fucking talk back and talk shit to Pam Greer." So now we gotta get a weaker chick to yeah. play this role. I think it worked. Pam Greer, another cool lady. Soft. I'm gonna give some positive reviews to the ladies today. Hell yeah! Shout out, uh, to the ladies. shout out, shout out, Christina Ricci. Shout out, Roseanne Arquette. Shout out, Pam Greer. <laughs> Uh, if you ladies want to talk, I'm sorry, I'm taken, I can't, but, uh... <laughs> I know they're uh, big on the Articulating Film podcast, so we'll, we'll rain check that for today, yeah. I guess, ladies. Uh, <laughs> but Robert Forster, uh, is in Jackie Brown. Yeah. Robert Forster. That guy. Really underrated actor, love him. Fucking icon. He's in, uh, Drive too. big part of Twin Peaks The Return. Really? And he's one of my favorite parts, yeah. Didn't he die he plays, recently? Uh, he died recently, almost right after it was all done airing. He's amazing in it. I love him so much in that show. Oh, man, he doesn't right. have, like, these super big dramatic scenes, but he just has this, like, warmth to him. And just looking in his eyes, there's so much there. He's really great in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he's a big part of it. He's one of the, like, the main characters. Yeah. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, like, of course, yeah. Jackie Brown's immaculate, and I'd love to see uh, what he can pull off. Uh, in Lynch's style, mm -hmm. that'd be so cool, especially with how uh, how kind of deadpan he is. Um, anyway, because I know you see you had to go soon. I just wanted to one last thing. There is one question I wanted to kind of talk about because I've kind of been into it recently. Um, I've been into this notion yes. that the perfect is the enemy of the good, but in in a flipped way to what I think people might interpret that as, as in 
if you spend your, your whole life trying to whittle away at something to make it like this perfect little thing, you're going to miss a lot of what you could have happened with, like what I talked about Altman earlier and Castlevania and stuff like that, in terms of making something bigger and good. Like making something good instead of whittling away at what's comfortable and safe, instead sure. of extending yourself and making something good in that way. So do, do you have any thoughts on like that sort of process? Uh, it's actually good advice for me that I think uh, the universe is trying to give because really the main thing that has hindered my progress through writing and stuff is mm. me being overly like judgmental on my every last word yeah. and trying to make it so, you know, it doesn't like, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I do like to follow that motto and I do believe it pretty well mm -hmm. uh, even though revisions are necessary but only in oh, the yeah. way where it's like not to make it perfect it's to make it cohesive and yeah. whole that's why like a lot of people will like i never besmear something by saying that it's incoherent mm -hmm. but the worst thing something can be is like incohesive yeah. i love cohesion and 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 when everything sort of clicks even if it's disparate yeah, and that, like we were just talking about, like with Lynch and stuff, and even with like some like three women, those are things people would call like weird, surreal kind of sprawling movies, and yet nothing in those movies mm -hmm. feel out of place because they all it all follows this internal logic, and I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. So yeah, like even when it is out of place, that's important. That's something really like powerful. Mm -hmm. That's something you know the 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 original like French surrealists were obsessed with juxtaposition. Yeah. And juxtaposition is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that's really one of the things that's so alluring to me, and especially about Blue Velvet. And right before I go, I guess I, I'll just, like, say one thing about Blue Velvet, and mm -hmm. then I'll probably have to go. Yeah, yeah. But there's this one scene in Blue Velvet, and it's a little bit of a spoiler, uh, again. I think people have so, seen Blue Velvet. I think we're okay. I know. <laughs> I know people have seen Blue Velvet, but if somebody hasn't, this is a great scene, so you yeah. gotta wait. Skip to the timestamp on In screen, Blue man. Velvet, dude, in Blue Velvet, uh, there's a sequence where uh, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont is with uh, Laura Dern's character, Sandy. They're, they're in the car. I think it's either right after, it's right after they went to the prom mm -hmm. and the, had the dance. And they're being chased by a car, and they think that it's Frank. So, you know, Jeffrey steps on it, the music gets all intense, and for a moment you do think it's Frank. And then it's revealed to be uh, Sandy's ex-boyfriend, who technically she's been cheating on him with uh, Jeffrey Beaumont. Mm -hmm. And so he's there with his friends, and they're all, like, wasted and trying to beat up Jeffrey, and everyone's out the car. And then... You're watching like this sort of like this would be like a conflict maybe in an early Twin Peaks episode, sort of like teenage angst kind of petty fight, and then you see Dorothy Valance naked, beat up, bruised on his lawn, yeah. walking sort of like a almost like a, a Night of the Living Dead character out from the shadows, and for a second nobody it doesn't register to any of the characters. And the, one of the kids who's drunk is like, oh, is that your mother? Is that your mother, Jeffrey? Which, I mean, you know, we can talk about the Oedipus Complex all day and how it has to do with that movie. Yeah. But uh, uh, but beyond that, that's like, then he really sees how, like, beat up and bruised she is. It registers that she's completely nude and, 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 and needs shelter, help, mm. you know, call an ambulance. 
and 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 he gets quiet and he's like i'm really sorry and everyone it's like that's a really really striking image and i think speaks about what the movie's about just as well as the, those uh beetles under the grass yeah uh just this the, this moment of a little minor uh dispute in a suburban town and then you just see like what's really going on in the world just the consequences of this burden of when it boils down to it at least in lynch's world is evil yeah you know yeah no absolutely I, I, that's a great little it's a real microcosm for the flick and uh yeah, I mean, I, don't, I think that's a that's a great place to to leave the, the podcast off. So, if you got anything you want to plug, For sure. any sort of like YouTube thing you're still uploading to, or anything where you're still posting stuff, you want to mention that here. Can... Uh, I mean, I will post to YouTube whenever. I mean, I guess I'll just say, the name of my rate your music account is Frampton Hollis, F R A M P T O N H O L L I S. Uh, experimental filmmaker named Hollis Frampton. That's, that's kind of his name backwards, uh, sort of. But, mm-hmm. but uh, and then uh, I I have a YouTube channel called The Prankster, and I don't really use it too much mm-hmm. now. But I'll probably make stuff when I have a camera again. Mm-hmm. And um, I have two Instagram accounts, and they're both sort of themed. One of them is called Gang David Lynch on IG. Uh, and one of them is called Ween dot Swag, uh, and and those are my two accounts. Hell yeah! On I'll... Instagram, and they're pretty. Uh, they're not like super successful, but I, I'm, you know, I'm in a. I'm sort of integrating myself into little niche communities. Mm-hmm. But I don't talk to any of them. It's funny. It's tough. It's, it's a tough journey. But yeah, I'll link all those in the description in case you're interested. And um, yeah, I think. I, I think I think we're good here. Thanks so much for coming on and having one yeah. to talk all this stuff. Well, stuff thanks out. for having me. Oh hell yeah, man! It was yeah, I, was... I love talking. So <laughs> yeah, no, because I was worried. It's kind I was of a just good like, format. Yeah, I was worried because I was like, what if I get this guy on and he just doesn't want to talk? Like, he doesn't want to say anything. And then right off the bat, you were just boom, and I was like, hell yeah, this will work. Oh yeah, damn. All right, well. Yeah, no, I I'm I talk to myself and I talk when I'm with like my girlfriend and people. I mean. She can attest. I, I can talk for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't... But somehow, I eventually say the right thing, and I can pace it. So that's really the important lesson that we, we want to take away from this is is whatever I just... I don't really remember. <laughs> it's, it's the perfect being the enemy of the good. You, you, you can talk a lot, and as long as you can make it cohesive, that's what matters, and that's what, we're, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, anyway... I won't keep you any longer. Tune in to the Articulating Insight podcast next time. And, um, yeah. Thanks for watching. Your whole world is black. No more will my green seagull turn a deeper blue. I could not foresee this thing happening to you.